The Bucks win game one of their opening round series against the Chicago Bulls in the NBA playoffs. The Brewers, they get a split with those pesky St. Louis Cardinals. And Aaron Rodgers goes all Saturday Night Live on a junior college player along with a moment with Giannis. We'll get to it all in just a bit. It's the 414 Sports Podcast. Let's go. But instead, it's the 414 Sports Podcast, and it starts right now. Welcome in once again. This is the 414 Sports Podcast. I'm Don Wachillis. Thank you so much for once again logging in, whether you've done so on Apple, Spotify, or Google, or any of the other five platforms that we currently reside on. Glad to have you with us for this episode. Hope you had a very blessed Easter weekend. An Easter weekend just jammed with various sporting events to keep you entertained throughout along with family and hopefully some some good eats and and as we make our way into what is now a Monday as we're putting this podcast together we're going to add also a little PGA golf towards the end I didn't mention that in the opening but we'll get to that as we wrap up today's podcast right before we get to a moment with Giannis so let's start this podcast off talking a little football and if we're going to talk a little football we have to start essentially with the fact that Aaron Rodgers who has been in the spotlight on more than one occasion since last April's draft when the news broke about how he was disgruntled with the Packers and we all know the soap opera that took place found himself in what could only be described as a real life Saturday Night Live skit last week participating in a charity event, a flag football event, in which Aaron Rodgers tried to do his best Patrick Mahomes no-look pass to a receiver in the end zone, but instead a young man by the name of Darius Maxwell, a Florida native, a junior college player who probably is not known outside of his team, his conference, and maybe his family, has now become somewhat of a household name, especially For those of us who follow the Green Bay Packers, Darius Maxwell, the junior college player, picked off one Aaron Rodgers and then proceeded to run the ball right back to him and hand it to him, at what point Aaron went childlike and PO'd to say the least and turned around and threw the ball at Darius Maxwell as he continued to run down the field and celebrating the fact that he picked off the four-time MVP. The four-time MVP who's only thrown 93 interceptions in his career, Darius Maxwell now could say, even though it doesn't count necessarily with his official stats, gets an Aaron Rodgers pickoff. And what makes it funny to me is the fact that as he hands the ball to Aaron Rodgers, who then turns and throws it at Darius Maxwell in a in nothing short of Eh, a little bit of a hissy fit. It so reminded me of the Saturday Night Live skit with Peyton Manning when he's on the field 
with a bunch of young kids and and not being what we perceive to be Peyton Manning. So like to think that Aaron Rodgers uh, had his uh, Saturday Night Live moment, only the fact is that that Saturday Night Live moment was more reality. <laughs> his reaction was more reality than anything else. So if you haven't seen it on social media, you need to look it up because I don't think you can do it justice by just talking about it. I think you have to actually see it because it, it it's hysterical. The Packers, however, did make a move last week. They bring in a veteran wide receiver, Sammy Watkins, comes to the Green Bay Packers via the Baltimore Ravens, gets a one-year $4 million deal. Last year, Sammy Watkins, 27 receptions, 394 yards, and a touchdown with the Ravens. The problem with all of those numbers, all career lows for Sammy Watkins. So you hope the incarnation that the Packers are getting of Sammy Watkins is one that is more like his time with the Kansas City Chiefs and not necessarily like his time with the Baltimore Ravens. But it is at least a veteran receiver on a one-year deal to help shore up what has been a depleted wide receiver room with MBS leaving for Kansas City with obviously Devontae Adams being traded to the Las Vegas Raiders, all of those in play. And you have to think that the Packers are still in the mix to bring in another veteran wide receiver. Sammy Watkins, a very good receiver. I think he'd make a great number two receiver on a squad. I don't necessarily know if he's still or has been or can be a number one receiver. And so I still think DK Metcalf is in the mix. You've got a number of draft picks now especially in the mid-20s, you could see the Packers trading Jordan Love with the way the quarterback draft is this year. It's not necessarily as strong as it will be next year or potentially the year after. This, If you're going to trade Jordan Love, this would be the year. This is where teams, I think, would make that jump in order to grab said Jordan Love from your hands in order to shore up whatever their quarterback needs are because I don't think they're going to find it this year in the collegiate draft. So you're going to stockpile some draft picks, and Seattle is in the midst of a complete rebuild. They won't admit it, but they are. When you get rid of Russell Wilson and some of the other players that they have, they're in the midst of retooling. They'll call it retooling. I'll call it a rebuild. With that being said, if you can package some draft picks, whether it be now or in the future, because DK Metcalf is the kind of receiver you're going to be able to provide an extended contract. You're not going to give him a one-year deal like you did Sammy Watkins. He's probably looking for a three- or four-year deal, and at his age and his skill set, a three- or four-year deal is not the end of the world. And so to do that, I still think we're going to see something of that nature take place come draft day. So once these trades start, you can have all of the draft predictions you want, but once these trades start, that's where things begin to change, and that's where you see some of these draft prognosticators get ripped backwards and forwards because they don't necessarily throw things in anticipating various trades that can take place. Also, once you see teams kind of step away from what the projections are going to be, all of a sudden you get a run. You get a run on defensive ends or a run on linebackers or a run on wide receivers, whatever the case may be. That's what throws these projections 
a lot of times right out the window, much like when people project what the NCAA tournament is going to be. Everybody knows how things are going to play out and why teams should win. And then the games happen and nothing makes sense. Well, that's kind of how the draft goes sometimes as well. So with that, Sammy Watkins, now a Green Bay Packer. Also the fact that I think we're going to see some uh, some draft day trades taking place involving our green and gold. One more football note before we get out on that particular topic, and that's the USFL kicked off this weekend. Um, okay. I there I found nothing to be overly excited about. I know some people are are happier than happy when it comes to that drone cam that kind of gets you right in the middle of the action and it had its moments. Um, they had to do something with the picture quality. Uh, I still think the uh, camera on the cable that flies up and down the field uh, that we see in the NFL, which actually started as a product of the old XFL as part of that experimentation. Um, still does a better job, but there were some angles that that drone, as they're calling it, um, had that was unique and, and gave you a little bit of a feel of what takes place during the game. I think the USFL is making the same mistake that all of these spring leagues have had. Stop throwing cameras in the midst of the coaches sending out plays or trying to be right there on the sideline. This idea that we're going to be involved as viewers by having a camera on the sideline just doesn't work. You know doggone well what's being said on the sideline when the camera is on is not what's being said during the course of a normal game. So it just it, it feels contrite. It doesn't feel authentic. And so I, I think as hopefully the season goes on, some things will change as far as the broadcast goes. USFL had 3 million viewers for opening night, which is a nice draw considering we've got NBA playoffs, considering Major League Baseball is in full swing. So 3 million, a nice draw for the USFL on that opening night. But as we said last time, wait till weeks four and five. Let's see what the viewership is weeks four and five. If this league is going to survive, it's not going to be by attendance in the stadium. Opening night attendance was was decent. If you saw the game on Easter Sunday in the afternoon, not so much. I mean, it, it's a busy time. To me, it's a rough weekend really to be kicking a season off. One of the games, the the Pittsburgh Mauler game being moved to Monday here as we're taping um, this podcast because of weather. It'll be interesting to see what the Monday viewership is for that particular game. But again, weeks four and five are going to be uh, market numbers for that league to see what their survival rate is going to be. Now, spring football, we've been yearning for it. We've wanted it. We're getting it. And it's a good outlet to have guys who are trying to make NFL squads. It's a great outlet for referees who are trying to hone their game. It's a great uh, opportunity for head coaches who are trying to uh, – you know, strengthen their skill set in order to get an NFL job. I mean, there is a place for it. Whether or not that place yet is going to be accepted by the American public, that will remain to be seen. All right, so from football, we're going to move to the NBA as the Bucks got an ugly, ugly game one win against the Bulls. But the key word, it's a win. And we'll take it and we'll talk about it right after this. Oh, 
Welcome back in. Let's get into some NBA playoff basketball as the Bucks got a win in their Game 1 matchup against the Chicago Bulls. And we're going to get to that in just a second. But probably the finish so far within the NBA playoffs as far as these opening games go in Round 1 of their various series was on Easter Sunday. It was Nets. Celtics as the Celtics get a one-point win on a last-second shot. This is the call from ABC Sports. Decide not to use it here. Brown the drive. Jalen Brown kicks it out. Smart fakes inside. Tatum spins. So once again, that's the call from ABC slash ESPN Sports and their coverage of that Celtic-Nets game yesterday. What a shot. Jason Tatum kind of pirouetting off of a 180 move towards the basket, bounces it off the uh, off the backboard and through the cup to give the Celtics that one-point win and a 1-0 advantage over the Brooklyn Nets. And, and watch that game coming up as Kyrie Irving – uh, tried to be slick and gave the two-fingered salute to a bunch of fans standing uh, behind him when he was inbounding the ball during uh, the game yesterday. And so, listen, it's Boston. It's going to get ugly for Kyrie Irving. So if he thought he endeared himself with his time there at Boston to get away with something like that, think again. It's going to be a madhouse with Game 2 being in the garden between the Nets and the Celtics. So that should be highly entertaining. And the fact that the Nets lose just does my heart good coming off of Easter Sunday, so we'll leave it at that. Now let's get back to the Bucks. The Bucks get a 93-86 win over at the Pfizer Forum. It was a game that got ugly after the first quarter. The Bucks opened up that first quarter, jumping out to a 9-0 lead. At some point, got that lead to 16. And suddenly, the Chicago Bulls found a way to keep chipping at it and chipping at it and chipping at it. And before you knew it, the Bucks were trailing in the latter stages of that third quarter going into the fourth. Both teams, however, did not shoot well in the fourth quarter. Uh, but the Bucks made some plays that the Bulls were unable to, and again, it gave them that 93-86 win. And the Bucks notoriously have not done well when it comes to Game Ones in playoff series. The Bucks, I think, up until yesterday, in winning that Game One, had lost something like six playoff series in a row. When we're talking about Game Ones, not the series, but Game One. They tend to come out a little sluggish in game one. They tend, and when I say they, the Bucks, the analogy I always think about is the fact that the Bucks seemingly use the first game much like round one of a prize fight in which both fighters get out there and they throw some jabs and throw some jabs and throw some jabs, and no one's really necessarily attacking or throwing the big bomb, so to speak, in order to knock somebody out unless the the situation uh, lends itself to it, but it's more that feeling out process. And I kind of feel that's the way the Bucks treat game one of these series. And yet even doing so, the fact that they've been off now for the better part of a week, looking a little sluggish, especially with their shooting, they had some open looks and couldn't knock down what 
would be considered easy shots for guys of their caliber, um, still got still got the win. So to me, that bodes well. Uh, many people thinking the Bucks will sweep the Chicago Bulls. I tend to think it's going to be more of a four-one. I think it'll go five games. I think the Bulls will figure out a way to get one, maybe at home, but the Bucks will prevail. I think at some point. And, and hopefully uh, get themselves ready for the second round. And hopefully you get games like what we saw with the Celtics in the Nets where you've got games going down to the wire. Now, for some people, they'll say, well, what that does is build up their playoff mentality, so to speak. It gets their skill set ready to roll. But sometimes those games can also take a lot out of a team. So whoever the Bucks' next opponent is, Hopefully they have a much easier time against the Chicago Bulls. Let these guys go ahead and beat each other up, so to speak. And then by the time they've got to take on our defending champions, life won't be maybe as difficult. One thing we know the Bucs are going to have to fix going into Game 2 with the Chicago Bulls was the fact that they had 21 turnovers in that opening round win against the Chicago Bulls, which also tells you, in essence, how good this Bucks team is when you can turn the ball over 21 times and still find a way to get the victory. I I gotta like the Bucks' chances. Also, the other thing is the fact that we've got to shoot better from the perimeter. As I mentioned, uh, when you look at Drew Holiday, Wesley Matthews, some some of the combinations that were on the floor, the shooting percentages were not necessarily good, low 30s. Uh, to finish out the game. So not turning the ball over and getting a higher shooting percentage out of some of our perimeter players going into game two is going to be something that we definitely need to watch for. Also keep an eye on Memphis. John Morant, my goodness, what a performance he put on against the Timberwolves the other day. He is a one-man highlight reel. Many of us here in the 414 remember John Morant for what we like to call, or at least I will call, for me, his coming out party when they played Marquette in the opening round of the NCAA tournament a couple of years ago and absolutely scorched the earth that Marquette played on on that particular day. And he's carried that over into his NBA career, at least at this point. Remember, it was between John Morant and Zion Williams coming out of college Obviously, the Pelicans taking Zion Williams, the chapters need to still be written with regards to Zion because he's been injury-plagued, but definitely we're seeing some of the chapters already being written when we talk about John Morant and his style of play and the way he can play come NBA playoff time. So that uh, Memphis Timberwolves series, Minnesota series, should be a fun one as well. One other thing to get to, and I'm going to touch on this now because it'll hopefully help transition a little bit into the Milwaukee Brewers and the world of Major League Baseball. And one of the things I really don't like to do is harp on officiating because I think it's probably, especially at the professional level, one of the most difficult jobs that there is when we're talking about professional sports trying to figure out what to let go, what to call, those types of situations, extremely difficult with now the size of the athletes that are playing the game. At some point, maybe we can look at basketball and evolve the court a little bit, 
Like, I don't think the court, I don't think we need to raise the basket. I don't think necessarily we need to lengthen the court, but I do think at some point we need to think about widening the court a little bit because the athletes are just bigger. That's a whole nother topic. Excuse me for a whole nother day. However, the miscalls on certain fundamental things, I, I, I hate to feel like the old guy yelling at people to get off his lawn because that's what I feel like I'm doing right now, but the travel calls that are being missed. And listen, the Bucks are guilty of it as well. There are extra steps being taken by my favorite team, and it's not being called. The travel calls that are being missed. James Harden, in the Sixers opening round game, carried in such a fashion, if you count it, if you go into slow motion, he took six steps before he was able to take his next dribble. I mean, there's fundamental things that Memphis... Timberwolves game that I was referencing just a moment ago there was an inbound play where the guy was clearly across the line clearly across the baseline to inbound the play no call I I don't necessarily want to see the referees getting getting a whole lot of heat because again it's a difficult job but there are some fundamental things that you could be calling that you're allowing players to get away with, that at some point you're going to tighten the rein, so to speak, and people are going to lose their minds because in the opening round it was okay, but now that we've gotten to the conference finals, suddenly it's not. It's lacking consistency on some fundamentals when it comes to the game of basketball. And the same can be said about baseball, which we'll be talking about the Brewers in just a sec. The strike zone. There's a lot of talk right now about moving the strike zone as far as it becoming automated with the type of technology that exists in today's world. And so when you're watching a game, the box is there, looking like a strikeout box from back in the day uh, on somebody's uh, on somebody's wall when you only had two people on a bat and a tennis ball. But the box is there, and we're seeing now the animation as far as where pitches are landing, and we're seeing strike zones that are highly inconsistent. We're seeing strike zones where strikes are being called well off the plate. Okay, so it's called well off the plate or well inside or a little bit low or a little bit high, whatever the case may be. The issue at hand is if it's called on one, it should be called on the other. So we saw an instance of that on opening day for the Milwaukee Brewers between uh, the Brewers and the Cardinals, obviously coming off that four-game series in which you saw somebody like Christian Yelich getting rung up on strikes that were clearly outside the strike zone or close, I'll say at least close, but that same pitch in which was being done by the Brewers was not being called. So that's what I'm getting at as far as the consistency goes. So what I'm saying is if if you have traditionalists out there, especially in baseball, who don't want to see the automation aspect, the technology aspect work its way into the game, then somebody needs to work on the umpires and making sure what they're doing is done at a more consistent level. What they're doing on the base path, I think, has been exceptional. When you look at how many replays that get imposed in the midst of a game and how many actually get overturned, it's minute. The guys on the base paths are doing a great job. The guy behind home plate is doing a great job doing what they need to do. However, the consistency of the strike zone is something 
that really needs to be worked on. And since, again, we're talking about baseball umpires, let's talk about baseball as the Milwaukee Brewers wrapped up their first homestand, getting ready for a quick one against Pittsburgh, and they split with those pesky St. Louis Cardinals. We'll talk about that after we take this quick timeout. So welcome back. Let's talk some Milwaukee Brewer baseball as the Brewers were able to get the split in their series against the St. Louis Cardinals with a 6-5 win on Sunday, on Easter Sunday, to say the least. It was a good job by the Brewers to kind of thwart off a a team that was really trying to make a big comeback in the latter half of that game. The Brewers getting out to a 6-3 lead and then hanging on for dear life down the stretch. We saw Albert Pujols hit his 681st career home run. The Cardinals always seem to have an Albert Pujols and a, a Yadier Molina, the guys who come into American Family Field and, and just do the Brewers wrong. They just do. They just seemingly have the Brewers number. So the Brewers getting a split against a NL Central opponent is definitely something that warrants uh, a little bit of we got through that one. All right, now the Pittsburgh Pirates come to town for a three-game set before the Brewers get back on the road. And so the Brewers right now sitting at 500. And considering the way the pitching has been at times, we saw that on Friday where the St. Louis Cardinals absolutely rolled uh, the Brewers on Friday night. And then you saw the pitching improve markedly come Saturday, but then the bats went by the wayside. And then yesterday to see the pitching, the starting pitching, do fairly well, the bats waking up and getting some timely hits. And I think that was the difference yesterday than what we saw, especially on Saturday. Friday was kind of an anomaly. I think Friday I heard uh, Bill Schroeder, I heard Roxanne on the telecast on Saturday that he said, watch when teams have a late night game or a night game have to travel, come home and play immediately the next day. The next day isn't necessarily the one that many people think. The next day tends to lend itself to however the team is playing and performing as they normally do. It's the day after, and that would have been Friday coming off of that game Wednesday night against Baltimore in Baltimore, flying back to Milwaukee, playing opening day, and then on Friday, everybody talked about it, everybody wrote about it, how the Brewers look flat, and that was the game, as uh, Rock was saying on the telecast, that people always need to watch when you're watching baseball, whether it's the Brewers or any other team, and it held to fruition uh, on Friday, in which they got trounced. Again, played much better defensively on Saturday, but the bats did not get the timely hitting. And so that's what we saw on Sunday, the fact that the Brewers were able to get some hits with guys in scoring position and bring the runs in that were necessary to get that 6-5 win. Again, a three-game homestand now for the Milwaukee Brewers. 
as they'll take on the Pittsburgh Pirates Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday before heading out on the road against the Phillies. And we'll remind people time and time and time again, it's 162 games, people. We got 162 games to get through. There are going to be some nights like we saw on Friday. There are going to be some games like we saw yesterday where you're able to squeak out a win after having a commanding lead. Kind of a parallel yesterday, wasn't there, between the Brewers and the Bucks getting out to commanding leads and then kind of having to hang on on Easter Sunday. But nonetheless, both teams got the victory. And if you're following Twitter and basing your feelings uh, with regards to the Milwaukee Brewers on what people are tweeting, step away from Twitter while the games are being played. The fact that people are living and dying on every pitch, every single inning, there's nothing wrong with it as far as being a fan goes. But I'll say it again, it's a marathon. It's 162 games. There's going to be some ups and downs. So what you hope, as we always have, you hope you get a split like you did against St. Louis Cardinals, or on a three-game set, you hope you win two out of three. That's all you can ask for. Nobody's ever gone 162-0. and No one will ever go 162-0. and The law of probability is just not there. So enjoy the ride. As, as these guys start to get into their groove, as these guys start to play in stadiums where the weather is a little bit warmer, only in Wisconsin could we be talking about getting ready to kick off a series against the Pittsburgh Pirates in the middle of April with snow on the ground, but that's the state we chose to live in, and that's what we're dealing with. So as I think the weather gets warmer, as these guys start getting into more of a groove, this team is just far too talented to to not be successful this season. So make sure that as you're watching the Brewers, you're not getting wrapped up into the world of Twitter and what they're doing pitch by pitch and inning by inning and find yourself in essence, sitting back and enjoying the ride. All right, we've got two things to do to wrap up this particular podcast. One, I want to talk about Jordan Spieth and his PGA win yesterday, and not necessarily what he did on the course, but what he did off the course. And then, as always, or at least now, I should say, we wrap things up with a moment of Giannis, and we'll get to that in just a sec. All right, so I played that little screaming episode coming back here as we get ready for our moment with Giannis to close out today's episode. That was the reaction of a bunch of young fans from little to teenage uh, as Jordan Spieth came out yesterday to sign some autographs. And if you were watching the tournament at all yesterday when Jordan Spieth finished, he was still in contention. He was off the course before... Others were who were in contention, ended up being a playoff, uh, and told a bunch of young fans, listen, I, I've got to go in. i got to sign my card. I'm going to relax for a minute. I need to go hit a few balls, depending upon what happens. But if you stay here, I'll be back. Even if I win, lose, draw, whatever the case may be, just hang here. I will be back. 
well, it so happens Jordan Spieth wins the tournament, gets his plaid jacket and the trophy and everything else, and that and that fan base, those kids, waited for him, and he held his word, came out. You could hear the screaming, the cheering. It goes on. You had a number of, obviously, parents who were just ecstatic that Jordan Spieth um, kept his word, so to speak, and signed a ton of autographs for those kids. And uh, too many times, I think, athletes get a bad rap on certain things, and that was one of them, I think, that needed to be highlighted because he wins the tournament. I know I'm sure what he wanted to do was go someplace and celebrate, and yet he took some time to sign some autographs. So good job to Jordan Spieth, not only for winning the tournament, for just being a decent human being with all of that. All right, as we do now, we're going to wrap things up with a moment with Giannis. We're still in dad joke mode, so we'll play a Giannis dad joke to wrap things up. But before we get to Giannis, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Don't forget to hit the like or subscribe button. We appreciate that very much. Have yourself a great week. I Hopefully you don't have to shovel. My goodness, only in Wisconsin can it be snowing on the Monday after Easter. But nonetheless, appreciate you being with us, and we wrap things up now with a moment with Giannis. Oh, why did you buy the Kuna stand uh, on his own? Say it Why did the bicycle could not stand on his own? Where's Zora? Is Zora here? No. She never lost with my joke, so I think it's a good one. Why did the bicycle could not stand on his own? I don't know. It was too tired. <laughs> <laughs>